Here comes Thomas. Thomas, you should be getting a uh, pop-up. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been quite a week since we last talked. Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> pretty good week, actually. A pretty good week. I, I would agree with that. A pretty good week. So, um, do you want to say anything about what's happening in Ukraine? Yeah, just very briefly on, on the situation, because I've seen a lot of um, commentary about the stunning victory of the of the Ukrainian troops in, in Kharkiv region. And some of this commentary misses out on an important element that facilitated that. So most people focus on the fact that Ukraine had prepared a, an offensive in the south, in the Kherson region. Um, some even gone as far as to say that this was a ruse, a feint, you know, it was a basically a false uh announcement uh to just bring a lot more uh russian forces to to this region which yeah. russian did indeed but it wasn't a just a faint it was a real offensive going from two sides both from the almost from the zaporizhia side in the in the east and 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 from the north and it was largely stopped in the east by some of the russian elite troops at a huge cost and about almost a thousand ukrainian soldiers who who died in that from the Zakarpatsia brigade. Um, so it was a real attempt and this attempt continues. There's a little wedge between Kherson, the city and, and Zaporozhye that has been opened. But the real reason why Russians were so weak in Kharkiv is not really the fact that they moved some troops to the south. It's what the Russian, the Ukrainian defense managed to achieve in the Donbas arc in the middle. So this is not spoken about too much, but you know, notice that since uh, Severodonetsk and Lysychansk were taken about two months ago, um, you know, maybe a couple of inches have been taken by, by Russia. Yes. And so these Russian forces have been severely depleted by dedicated defense of the, of the Ukrainian troops. And some of the troops, Russian troops that are in Kharkiv were supposed to um, defend these lines. And some of them are actually redeployed into this area and hence the, you know, the relative weakness of the Kharkiv region, which was uh, redeployed with new forces, new reserves, poorly trained um, uh, soldiers, and generally not even prepared in in, in a battle formation. Hence this yeah. weird parking loss for of uh, old uh, Soviet equipment that was not even you know in trenches. So so that defense in the Donbas arc really heroic and and very very costly for Russian invaders. That's what partly uh, allowed for this amazing maneuver. Amazing maneuver, I'm saying amazing because uh, it wasn't a huge force. It's only now the infantry and those tanks that Ukraine got from Poland are kind of entering and cleaning up this this area from some um, holdouts. Um, but the reason why Russians didn't see it because there was not a massive, you know, right. Russian style, uh, you know, mobilization of troops uh, ready ready for invasion. So so it's more a maneuver and 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 the speed of this, which which is really uh, important. But let's not forget the. You know the the the, the huge um, dedication heroism of Ukrainian troops, both in Donbas Ark and in the north uh, eastern part of of the Kherson region, which allowed for this to be uh, to be possible. All right. So and 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 obviously, there's so much talk about this all over media and social media. You know, I, I don't know that it makes sense for you and I to spend a lot more time than that. Yes. No, I think, I think, okay. One thing, one thing which probably is worth mentioning is that, um, it, it has had an economic ricochet 
So okay. because it was a surprise, you know, markets react to surprises. Most information isn't a surprise, right? Yes. Um, and so this was not expected. Uh, not only by the Russian forces, it was not expected, you know, in Europe, which is really struggling with very volatile energy markets. Because of I think it was also unexpected even, but even for the Ukrainians didn't expect what they so found. It's been, a long time since, it's been a long time since we saw, you know, a major victory by Ukrainians. But notice what happened to Euro. Euro strengthened very strongly, strengthened uh, on the back of this success. <laughs> Because the European economy is suffering from this conflict. And so any inkling that Ukraine could be successful sooner rather than yeah. in a year or two or five is a very positive boost for the, for, for the European economy. And it also, you know, increases this, this, this commitment to survive the winter that Putin, of course, is counting on, you know, yeah. depriving Europe of, of energy resources. So this was a sudden very strong blip in, in, in Euro. All while we know that in the previous quarter, Ukrainian economy collapsed by 37%. So it needs a lot of help. It needs a lot of help from, from, from the West, of course. And so, you know, let's factor it in. The positive surprises in the battle, on the battlefield will have also um, positive externalities for the European economy, which is important because so much about Ukrainian economy right now depends on, on, on the help from the West, not only from the United States. Well, and it, you know, there's this argument that goes on. I find myself having it all the time. Is this really a global conflict or is it a regional conflict? What you just said about the impact on the euro really drives home the point. I mean, it illustrates it perfectly. It's a global conflict because. I mean, that, you know, we always talk here on this show about this conflict playing out at three levels, right? Yes. And at the Ukrainian Russian level and the European level. With right. several countries very, very strongly involved, not least, you know, Ukraine's neighbors to start with. Um, yes. And then the global extension yeah. of this because of the Russia-China relationship and the sort of at least verbal alliance or partnership that both countries are maintaining. And this, we have the best illustration of this this week, of course. Yeah. So we're going to get to that in one sec, but do you want to address... Anna's question before we move on to the Russia-China relationship. Another one that fell off. I missed it. Well, so it's a lot of people falling, you know, it's, uh, yeah. you're falling, you're falling off balconies, you know, slaughter. I think we need to work on, we need to get gravity on our side. And then, think, uh, yeah. I think there's someone on, on telegram, on Russian telegram that sort of uh, itemizes all of those. Uh, so oh, I think if this is a new one that by my count would be number nine already among those. So it's, uh, it, there's definitely a turf war going on in Moscow. Yes. So, uh, be aware of gravity in your everyday nine. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. So let's move on to the, to the Russia, China relationship yeah. and what's happening literally right now as we speak. Yeah, so very interesting moment to have this this show right now because um, after a thousand days of quarantine, <laughs> Chinese dictator actually decided to uh, travel abroad. Um, his first stopover was in Kazakhstan, which is important because nine years ago when he announced Belt and Road Initiative, he announced it with the current president's uh, predecessor, mm -hmm. uh, Sultan Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan. Um, and he stopped over there, but the main, um, objective of his trip is, uh, Uzbekistan, Samarkand, 
a beautiful city with a lot of old madrasas, Iranian style madrasas, mm. uh, can still be um, visited. Uh, and that's for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, uh, where he is meeting today with Vladimir Putin. So uh, it is important. Um, the, the, the Kazakhstan, the Kazakhs, the, the, you know, the order of things and the meeting with Kazakhstan was interesting because Kazakhstan is one country of the Shanghai Cooperation that is not supporting Russia and Ukraine, quite, quite the opposite, right? And of course, they have a significant, about 20% of the population is Russian speaking. So some of the arguments, racist arguments that Putin rolled out against Ukraine apply also potentially to Northern Kazakhstan. And so a stronger relationship between Kazakhstan and whoever else is, is a plus for President Tokayev. Um, whoever else, uh, you know, ideal would be the West, but the West is, you know, finding Kazakhstan somewhat toxic since the near uprising and, and riots early in the year. Um, so it's either China or Turkey and preferably both uh, against Russia. Um, he also, by the way, Mr. Tokayev changed again, the name of the capital. So it's interesting capital, uh, Astana, you know, I've been there. It's, uh, it's probably worse than Chicago in terms of how cold it can get in winter and how hot it can yeah. get in, in summer. So similar, you know, central continental. Um, climate, but uh, Nazarbayev, the predecessor of the current president, decided to build a new capital there, as some dictatorships often do, in Burma, for example, uh, and, uh, you know, called it Astana, which in Kazakh language means simply capital. Very interesting architecture. I mean, highly recommend it if you have a chance uh, to ever visit, uh, far away from everything else, in what is the ninth largest country in the world. Um, but it was after... Um, after uh, Nazarbayev's retirement, it was actually renamed Nur Sultan after his first name. <laughs> so actually, when I visited this, this was Nur Sultan, and you know all the all the flight calls had to be changed from Astana and so on. Anyway, it's back to Astana now, uh, which shows you know one of the things that are happening there. It's significant inter-clan you know, um, fighting to just remove the the members of the World Guard by the current president. And that's not impossible that, you know, the anti-Moscow stance that Kazakhstan is maintaining thanks to success, relative success of that, of this policy. But that's Kazakhstan and that's, let's say, sort of a second league um, uh, topic. The main issue is, of course, the meeting between Xi Jinping and, and, and Putin. And it was preceded by a very important regional trip by Li Zhongshu, who's number three in China. So in China, I have to count of course, the Communist Party is first on top of the Communist Party. You have a standing committee of seven people, then the Politburo, 25 people, from which the standing committee is elected or appointed. And then you have the Central Committee of the Communist Party and then the, the Congress of the Communist Party of 2,000, 3,000 people, members of the Communist Party. That's, that's how it works. Anyway, number three, who's the chairman of the Standing Committee of National People's Congress, Li Zhongshu, undertook an important international trip he first, he went among other places to Nepal and Mongolia. Nepal, because the Chinese fear American presence there, the U.S. offered a half a billion essentially grant to a, um, a prime minister who's much less pro-Chinese than the previous one. But the previous one signed the deal to build a rail from Tibet to Nepal. And of course, India frequently... <laughs> but Li Zhongshu... Li Zhangshu uh, subsequently traveled to Vladivostok, to Russia, for Eastern economic <laughs> 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 sounds. 
But uh, yeah, it's an appropriate sound effect for our discussion of China. Yeah, there may be one or two more, so I apologize for that. All right, and so so what they what what happens then? It's it, he traveled to Moscow to meet with members of Russian Duma. Okay, so Russian rubber stamp parliament, and statements he made there three days ago. So three days before Xi Jinping's meeting with Putin, are the clearest yet. Um, spelling out of uh, China's support for Russia. So let me just read what what exactly he said, because it's it's quite emblematic. So Li Jiangshun said in Moscow, the US and NATO threatened Russia at its home door, forcing it into a corner. It's only natural for Russia to fight back to protect its core national interest. China fully understands Russia and has assisted Russia in various ways. Quote unquote. So it's number three. China's number three speaking in Moscow. Now, he also uh, suggested a common front against sanctions, against anti-Russian sanctions. So that pleased, of course, his 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 Russian uh, public a lot. And so three days later, Xi Jinping is meeting with with Putin. Um, I see in a lot of liberal neoliberal circles in U.S. this hope that um, you know. Xi Jinping is not going to throw him a bone. You know, don't right. count on birds. You know, China is too rational about it. Um, some people point to the fact that Li Keqiang, who's number two, the vice premier, just fired um, a guy by the name of Le Yacheng, who was a vice minister of foreign affairs, the most pro-Russian voice in the Chinese government. So, you know, pro-Chinese market liberals are kind of clinching that saying, hey, look, the Prussian forces are being eliminated from the government first. He was eliminated by Li Keqiang, who's going to step down um, out of his own will uh, in mid-October during the party congress, even though he's sufficiently young at 67 to stay, because you can stay at 67, 68, you have to go. Li Jiangshu, who's 72, will go. Uh, so Li Keqiang will go. So even if he is sometimes viewed as this side of more uh, rationalistic guy, you know, pro-economy against all those draconian COVID crackdowns and against the 100% support for Russia, um, he's he's going. And so, uh, secondly, you know, Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, he was, by the way, demoted to be head of National Radio Association or something like that, <laughs> the Russian guy, uh, so quite painful. Um, but uh, the uh, the government doesn't really matter as much as the party, right? So in, at every level in a Leninist system, such as Soviet system, a Chinese system, you have a party cadre above the minister. You see often this in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs when Wang Yi, the minister, is below the former foreign minister who's the head of the party's uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, Yang Jiechen, right? And so that works like this in every single area of the economy. The party is above the uh, the administration as such, the state administration. And so, um, so that's the first thing. The second, the second surprise is that Xi Jinping actually is traveling abroad when there is so much talk about against hopeful liberal talk. Okay, he's going to be sidelined in in you know at the party uh, right. the Congress in 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 October. We have no signs of this happening. So we have no signs that there is sufficient displeasure of his policies. Secondly, that there are people that are strong enough to actually push back against his candidacy. And third, that they are not only strong enough, but willing to risk that. Because several senior uh, party members in the last two years who have voiced concerns 
about Xi Jinping's policies, such as the COVID policies, or uh, I don't know about Russia policy, but definitely COVID policy right. and economic policies or anti-American policies, they have all been sentenced to jail terms, 18 years each. Okay. Mm. So three, three big names that I can find 18 years. So that's, and at the same time, he appointed a lot of new people, his, his people from his entourage. There's a guy, um, I think he's called Wang Yanghong, who's the new head of the police, the, the, the security bureau, um, Chen Yixin, another pro uh, Xi Jinping person who's heard of the uh, public affairs and legal commission. So he stuffed people with his very, very staunch supporters. And I think the litmus test will be whether Li Chang, who's the head of the Shanghai party, um, and messed up the COVID situation in Shanghai, as we could have seen a yeah. couple of months ago. And he's a very strong uh, Xi Jinping supporter. If he gets to the standing committee, that means that basically Xi Jinping holds um, everybody in the party by the pair. Um, yes. Yes. Which, by the fact that he's taking the risk to fly on a plane abroad um, just weeks before the party congress means that he's very strong in his saddle. And so now what's happening at this meeting with, with Putin? So two things. First, he met first with the five or four other members of the of CSO, the Central um, Asian members in a kind of a round table with a mask on. And then he met with Putin without the mask for the first time. And so because of that, and yeah, Putin so also without a mask. Putin never wears a mask. I, I barely remember, I don't know if anybody remembers Putin wearing a mask. Okay. I don't know, but, but Xi Jinping. But he kept his distance too. Yeah, yeah. Xi Jinping yeah. took off his mask uh, for a meeting with, with, with Putin. And um, important statement came from, from Russia saying that they're, you know, they're planning to have a, just to explain the situation, very bad timing, given what happened around Kharkiv. Um, yes. And Russia also expressed solidarity with China, solidarity over the situation in Taiwan Strait, mm. which, is, which is very important. So, you know, we don't know how, you know, the Chinese side will, what they will formulate with this, you know, uh, on the back of this, of this meeting, there's no doubt that China is as usual doing its own business. You know, he had a meeting with Berdi Muhammadov, the, you know, the dictator of uh, Turkmenistan, who's the second largest provider of natural gas to China, much to Russia's displeasure. So definitely Russia appears at SCO as this weak partner here. Is a weak partner coming out from you know a military situation which is very unsteady, and uh, you know that can be projected back to China as a as a significant win uh, for China. As this very strong pro-Russian statement was made by number three, in a way Xi Jinping doesn't have to do it. Yes, right? because it just happened. Um, so you know it is it is a significant meeting, the first meeting between the two since that meeting on. February 4th, just prior to the, um, to the, to the war, the outbreak of the war, although they both spoke over the phone several times since, right? So they're in frequent, in frequent contact. Putin today, this morning called, um, Xi Jinping, his old friend, Stary Druk. Mm-hmm. It's okay to say it in Russia, but it's important for Russians to translate it into Chinese, which is why he said that, because this term, Laopangyo, means something very special in Chinese politics. So Chinese politics is always very connection driven. Right? It's a guanxi in business as well, but politics above all. I mean, Xi Jinping himself wouldn't be where he is if it wasn't for his mother. 
making the right call, phone calls to the right people at the right time, right? He wow. never really wow. excelled. He never really excelled in anything, whether in Zhejiang or in Fujian, or whatever. He was always salvaged in his career by his mm. mom, who's still alive. So unfortunately for all of us, good genes there. Um, Sorry? Can we, take, can we take her phone away? <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Um, they, so Xi Jinping, uh, being called Lao Pangyong, old friend, this is how you call people in any quasi-informal Chinese environment. Hmm. Uh, if, if you call some, the first the person should be a little bit, you know, have a bit of gray on, on their head, call him this way and needs to have some track record of functioning in China. But it, it, it means I'm hearing you. It means, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm with you. I have space for you. You know, I, I'm you're, you're worthy of my, I think you worthy of my attention. Exactly. That's what it means. If I call you this, so in, in the Chinese cultural context, it's extremely important in, in diplomacy in relations and business and in politics and so on to call people this way because of the so much happening at the informal side, right? Not the signing of documents, which are just a piece of paper. That's our thinking, right? I mean, like, you know, it reminds me of once um, signing, signing a deal um, with a airline um, operator in China and my and, you know, and we signed it with the director, took pictures, you know, shaking hands. And I went back to, to, to Switzerland when we worked in, and, you know, a week passes, two weeks, three weeks, and nothing happens. You know, we can't really implement any of that deal, right? And so my, 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 my Chinese assistant was on the phone all the time trying to figure out what's going on. No solution. Finally, I have to jump on a plane and fly back to, to Beijing. So flying back to Beijing, I was supposed to see Mr. Wang again, find out what's going on. And of course, I'm having, you know, this, this, this document with me. And so it turns out that Mr. Wang, you know, he has been demoted, fired, imprisoned, you know, executed, whatever. I'm supposed to see his replacement, Mr. Zhang. So I'm saying, saying Mr. Zhang is saying, you oh, know, so nice to meet you and so on. And, you know, and we have this, uh, this, this country, deal. right? Of your company, the deal. And he says, oh, Mr. Wang, but he doesn't work here anymore. So that's what it's worth. So when Putin's gone, all the deals go to, <laughs> he doesn't work here anymore. <laughs> well, you know, when Putin's gone, it's going to be more dramatic for him. Yes. For all. It's funny. There was, there was the other, I think on the um, Al Jazeera, I recommend Al Jazeera sometimes. Al Jazeera, on Al Jazeera, there was this, this Moscow based uh, analyst who says, uh, you know, Russia cannot lose this war because it would mean it's great political crisis in Russia. <laughs> and you ask us like, what is worse? Like killing innocent civilians in, in Ukraine or having a political crisis in a country? Yeah. Oh right. yeah. That's, that's it, what it is. So yes, there will be a political crisis in Russia. No doubt about it. Yes. Yeah. You're now bordering on the conversations we have every week with Ilya Potomarev. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we hear the same sort of thing. Um, so. In terms of the summit that's happening right now between uh, China and Russia, is this for show or is there something dramatic to come out of this? Well, let's, you know, let's, the framing of this is within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization about which we spoke before. We started this Shanghai Five. 
which were um, Russia, China, and three of the Central Asian republics. And then it expanded uh, Uzbekistan, where it's happening right now, and Turkmenistan, uh, and then added India. Although India is, I think, presented at the level of a minister or even vice minister. Um, Iran is a member, or was observer for a long time, is a member now. Uh, Pakistan joined around the same time as, as India as well, right? So it's a larger grouping right now. Uh, and it's a grouping which is dominated by China. Um, uh, you know, it started with a Belt and Road Initiative um, uh, for real, right? So the Shanghai Five is a little older, Belt and Road Initiative initially was this idea of infrastructure development uh, that China proposed to its West. And to yeah. this day, well, today, actually, one of the announcements at this round table meeting with, with the various stands was that the China will continue building um, a rail and road link through Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. So to be less dependent on Kazakhstan and Russia. Mm. Uh, so, you know, China's playing these peons uh, pretty well there. Um, there is, however, there is a definitely a slowdown in the Belt and Road uh, process in general. I mean, you must have seen the crisis in Sri Lanka, the debt crisis in Montenegro, the, you know, the very difficult situation right. in Pakistan. You know, this is often loan shark style um, credit. Let me just explain this I'm using an example, because I think this is usually not very well appreciated. I'm going to use an example of, say, an African um, infrastructure development. Um, so stay with me for, for a moment. Let's imagine that China comes to build a bridge to mm -hmm. Africa. Actually, I saw a bridge like this in, in Cote d'Ivoire a while ago, um, which uh, had collapsed. It collapsed because it was not built to sustain the rain season yeah. in West Africa. But it's assumed it most of after the first after yeah, after the rain season, the Chinese bridge is you know went down, right? So, but not uh -huh. all of that infrastructure is such poor quality. However, the question is the valuation of this project. So let's imagine that you know you're building the Chinese operators are building a bridge within the Belt and Road Initiative. They're building a bridge. In exchange for, usually it will be interest rates paid, you know, in arrears yeah. at a certain percentage, uh, with sort of a risk cap on top of this. Um, but often this is paid in kind. This is paid, for example, with um, natural resources, hmm. with hydrocarbons, oil and gas, with minerals. You now, in African context, could be some of those minerals that China is not very well endowed with. Right. Um, quality copper, cobalt, manganese. Um, uranium. So, um, you know, you have to value the future flows of those minerals that will be extracted in this country to match the value of that bridge. That's right. right. So for example, over five years, the country will deliver say copper to China, uh, at X that at the discounted level corresponds to the value of that bridge. Of course. It's a far of course. is really what yes. It's a part of like future. Yes, exactly. At some form of, you know, future value, future cash flow, net present value of yeah. cash flows. Right. Now, of course, commodities change all the time, right? So you have to, right. you have to hedge some of that uh, price exposure. And often by the time the bridge is finished, China will say, well, it's actually, you know, so expensive it should be 10 years, not five. Of heavily right. discounted or free <laughs> flow of mineral resources. In several cases, when World Bank economists later came to those African countries to actually value the projects, 
they found out that they were hugely overvalued. The value right. of a bridge, the value of a road, the value of presidential palace, the value of the soccer stadium, whatever the critical infrastructure was, was hugely overvalued. And therefore, you know, China got a lot of resources, mm -hmm. but at a huge, huge discount. Just, I want to make yeah. sure this, I want to make sure what you're saying is clear to everybody. What you're saying is country X paid $40 billion for something, the future resources and what they should have paid 10 billion. Exactly. They overpaid by a, by some factor. Exactly. And, so and, and the value of the bridge I'm sure was set by China. So absolutely. there was some. Yeah, there was some, some deliberate, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right. It was, they were, they were, they were hoodwinked and it was deliberate. Yeah. But you know, this is, this is not just China. It's common in business generally that whoever writes a term sheet for the contract, yeah. is going to write it to his or yeah. her own advantage. Right. So it's, right. it's, it pays off to do the homework and the Chinese do the homework and many of these countries on the receiving end say, wow, we're going to have this infrastructure for free. And who cares about right. tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, right? Right. And then, right. you know, suddenly there's a problem with current account deficit. Once you have a problem with current account deficit, you know, there's two economists wrote about it a couple of years ago after the great financial crisis for uh, Rogov and Reinhardt. If, if you have a current account issue for a significant period of time, uh, you are liable to major market dislocation and big financial crisis sooner or later. And then, of course, this is what's happening to Sri Lanka. Um, right. you know, in some cases for those overvalued projects that the countries couldn't pay, China engineered debt to equity swap. So they basically decided to own that infrastructure. That's the case, for example, of the port in Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. which what they did is exactly what the bridge did to them in Hong Kong in the late 19th century. Right. Right. So, so basically, basically kind of a neo-colonial attitude, somehow this neo-colonialism, whether economic as in China's case or military as in Russia's case doesn't bother former colonial countries as long as they listen, co colonies in Africa and elsewhere, as long as they listen to the Chinese and Russian propaganda about the Western colonialism, right? That, that them a lot. But now in addition to this Belt and Road, which really started in Central Asia, and that's why we started talking about it from the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, but it expanded into Southeast Asia, Africa, Middle East, and even Latin America. There is now an effort by China to multilateralize some of these, some of these projects. And so that's in the spirit of what they call commitment to multilateralism. So, you know, China comes out and, you know, we're sharing common destinies, now we're common planet. We're here for peace and stability and security of all, not like the West and US, you know, there's yes. more instability. So it's an effort to delegitimize the West. So far they have successfully delegitimized the West, which wasn't there building infrastructure in those countries, right? Mm -hmm. But now it's going beyond the objective power towards the subjective power. And this is where, when Putin says we fully uh, support Russia over Taiwan, is because they need to piggyback precisely on that effort. And that well, effort. Well, support China over Taiwan. China over Taiwan. Yeah. And they have, they, uh, Russia knows that China has a lot of levers, not least at the UN right now that Russia can benefit from over and yeah. above their veto power at the security uh, council. So they, 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 about a year ago, so it was September 21st last year, 
Xi Jinping at an annual UN assembly announced the creation of the Global Development Initiative, the change of Fajian Changi, which is sort of a soft version of Belt and Road. So Belt and Road is this hard infrastructure, yeah. you know, market-based sort of the companies coming and making those valuations. Now it's more about grants. It's more about capacity building. It's all of this language that the UN bureaucracy absolutely loves. And because Belt and Road was supposed to bring about 3 trillion US dollars worth of investment, and it's scratching less than one third. And now China, which has undergoing an economic crisis on its own, is looking for other funds to yeah. collateralize this project within a UN agenda. And Secretary General of UN just loves it because his self-self cooperation fund you know, there was just 3 billion in it. Now suddenly there's 42 billion that comes from, from China. There's UN Peace Development Fund that China is gonna carry. And there's the agenda, 2030 agenda for sustainable development, which is completely moribund. And China is coming with this high in rhetoric, low in substance reform of global governance. So we're gonna just save the world and give you all money for free, just like with this example of the bridge, right? And so it's, 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 very, it's, it's, it's very suggestive. 55 countries, UN members, most of them developing countries, are actually members of the club of the GDI, of this Chuan Chui Fajian Changyi. And so they actually, under the leadership of China, follow through and buy all this narrative. But that's, a, that's one initiative. The second initiative, which is more important, and here where China is borrowing directly from China, is Global Strategic Initiative. So that, that's one is Chencho Anchuan, Changyi, strategic initiatives, which is a form of taking the, 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 the concerns of insecurity and every dictatorship has a sense of insecurity, um, to the international level. And so that GSI is, uh, it sort of expands on the China national security, uh, concept, which was created in 2014 and exteriorizes it to the, to the outside world. And why is it so easy to do for China? Because China is positioning itself as a Southern country. It's a South, South cooperation. We all in it for you, for you. We're helping you to, to wean you off that ugly Western influence democracy. You know, there, there's other democracy. Look at the democracy of that we having, right? If you want to withdraw too much money in China right now, and there is a, there is, there is a banking crash, well, your COVID code goes red, right? And suddenly you cannot take a bus. You cannot be in any public space, right? That's Chinese democracy. That's how dystopian and Orwellian it gets. And this is what China offers. In addition to infrastructure for dictatorships, for tyrannies to entrench themselves in power, there's this whole soft narrative about global governance and security. And I think we're going to talk about it more next time, but I'd like to show to you that just as the world was divided between Soviet Union and the United States, this third group, the non-aligned countries developed a certain nature of narratives, which is now proving extremely helpful to both China and Russia, because people who lived in the cold war as young, maybe students, African students in Moscow or in Beijing or somewhere are right now in positions of power very often. And so, you know, neoliberalism didn't work very well for those countries, right? They, yeah. 
improve. I mean, there are certain improvements and technology also improve people's lives and, you know, the child mortality is a lot lower and so on. But the reason why so many countries abstained at the UN during the vote to kick out Russia from the Human Rights Commission, uh, there is a reason for it. And the reason for it is that we are losing the South. And we're losing the South because there's a whole pedigree that goes back to, to, the, to, to the, you know, the times of the, of the Cold War. And we, the United States, by disbanding in 1999, the U.S. Information Agency, which is an important source of projecting our ideals to the world, yeah. we disbanded it. Clinton did a lot of stupid things. This is one of the most stupid things he did. We disbanded this. The people were sent to some subcommission somewhere, other retired. It's like in this movie with Michael Douglas. What do you do after, you know, the falling, falling something like this? Yeah. When, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Falling yeah. down. Do do? Yeah, falling down. What do you do after the Cold War, right? If you, if you work right. to win the Cold War and now suddenly you're fired. Anyway, we don't have a narrative that could sell to these countries, which China and Russia have, and hence the support, the huge support for Russia. And unfortunately, it matters for Ukraine because Ukraine is not known in those countries. It's not known. Ukraine is just a provider of food, you know, grains. Right. Good others. That's all they know. They don't realize that the GDP per capita of Ukraine is like Egypt, more or less. No, they don't realize that it's Ukraine that's being recolonized. And that is missing. Ukrainian diplomacy was very weak before the war. By the way, all of those countries in Eastern Europe, they don't have a strong diplomatic corps. Of course, Ukraine justifiably focused on the West, on Western Europe, on, you know, Korea, Japan, and so on. And, and that's, that's correct. But we, as the West, we have to do so much more because we're losing votes real quick. And this global initiative about which I'll speak next year, next week has already attracted not only, you know, Pakistan, you can expect, and, you know, uh, Cambodia or something, but Nicaragua, which participated in Vostok military um, um, exercises the other day, uh, run by Russia and China, Uruguay and Cuba, Cuba. So three countries from, from the Western Hemisphere. So, you know, it's encroaching slowly, not just in Venezuela, it's encroaching slowly on the space, which used to be sort of America's backyard. So I think it's a very, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a topic that requires more in-depth understanding. Why is it that Ukrainian narrative, which we think is absolutely clear, um, loses to what Li Zhangshu, uh, China's number three, said in Moscow the other day, right? Why that narrative, the Chinese-Russian narrative is selling. So, um, you know, we'll talk about it more next time. Do you want to answer Anna's question? Which is? Hungary, yes. We had an episode about Hungary. So Hungary has its own idiosyncratic reasons to do this. Um, it, you know, from the very beginning, we were, we were trying to understand why is Russia doing what it is doing? It's doing on a kind of international level because it doesn't provide much to the outside world other than, you know, margin, marginalized political groups and so on. It doesn't provide you know, a system of governance that will be attractive. It doesn't provide technology that will be attractive. It's not right. a source of innovation, even though it has very intelligent people who emigrate, um, uh, but nothing else. But it's a provider of insecurity, destabilizing and then restabilizing its near border and beyond. Syria's beyond, right? Libya's beyond. So uh, that's where they're useful. Unfortunately, there's 
you know, if we divide the world into three groups these days, um, the the nations that are built on um, capital flows and really thrive on competition, which are United States, United Kingdom predominantly, then the nations that are based on cooperation, that believe in this Wilsonian world, this international liberalism, most of European countries, Northeast Asia, and so on. And then you have countries that are thriving on conflict, of which Russia yeah. is you know, predominant example, of course, China, Iran as well, Turkey as well, despite its alliances on, on this side, and Hungary as well, because of its history, because of its history. So for Orban, the idea that suddenly there is, it's, it's possible to actually shift the borders while you have couple of million of ethnic Hungarians living outside of the borders of post-1918 Hungary, um, it's a very important political um, um, source of support, right? So that sort of nationalism, we are all Hungarians, we should be all together. I'm not saying Hungary is going to invade Transylvania, Vojvodina, Slovakia, or Zakarpatia in Ukraine tomorrow, but you know, those countries are not considered friends by Hungary because of those minorities. Uh, all of these people are giving Hungarian passports and Russia, Russian way of doing things pleases those extreme right-wingers in, in Hungary. And unfortunately, one of them is in power, right? So um, I think this society is quite divided. It doesn't please everybody in Hungary, uh, but it, it's the ramification of this is such that this is one country in Eastern Europe which clearly has a completely different view of the Ukrainian war than anybody from Finland, Sweden, North, right. all the way to Romania and even Bulgaria. I have a hundred questions for you about what you just said. We're not going to get to them all today, but you're, maybe you've said this before and I just heard it differently today, but you're splitting the world into three groups, competition, you know, kind of classic capitalism of the UK and the US cooperation, Europeans and some Asians. And then it's the third group that I, I never really, how you framed it, I never really thought about it in that context before. And I think you said you qualified that third group as thriving on, did you say, did you say conflict? Yeah. And so the one question I'm gonna ask you today, and I'm gonna ask you many others in, in coming weeks, if you thrive on conflict, and the minute you said it, I, I sort of internalized it, understood it. I could see how that could be your worldview and the, and the context of, of life and society that you live in. But when you live in that world, you grew up in them. I mean, you're, yes. you grew up in, in communist Poland, right? Under a dictator. How do you get from there? to either a Western style culture of competition where there's rules or the European model of cooperation. How do you make, how do you get millions of people and your institutions to make that transition? Yeah. Well, you're, 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 you're open the pamphlets, you open and pen. Yeah. I, I realize that. One thing I want to avoid in the answer that will continue for forever is some form of determinism here. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not predetermined that Turkey or China or Russia or Iran or Hungary have to act like this because of geography, because yeah. of history, because of anything. These are still decisions, decisions of those human beings who are 
in positions of power there. But these decisions are somewhat constrained by the rationality generated by their respective histories. So the reading, selective reading of those histories, yes. read Putin's statements and how this history evolved and here the geography, your neighbors, where you are, where you're not, where you would like to be, but are not, wink, wink, yeah. Taiwan, Ukraine, um, that has a lot to do with the decisions that are made. And so while it's not deterministic, in addition to human psychology and the uh, identification of us versus the other them, uh, there are certain conditions that just sort of predispose certain countries towards more of that choice than another choice. And it's easy to talk about, you know, free-flowing liberal capitalism when you have access to two oceans and so on, but it yeah. wasn't the case in the United States when it was a very, very poor country. And I basically set this 200 years history between the Virginia uh, massacre and the Battle of New Orleans, right? Those 200 years, the United States was, you know, weaker than Chad today or somewhere. Yeah. So anyway, we'll come back to this. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's actually leave it there. I think that's a great place to leave it.